we haven't, I believe, really solved the inflation problem. So if I'm right that the inflation problem stays sticky and interest rates stay sticky, it's the bottom half of the country that's going to lose. And the Fed is going to come under unbelievable pressure to do something about that. And that do something about that is you have to bring the inflation rate. You cannot just ignore the inflation rate and say, let's just cut the funds rate to 1%. Because all you're doing then is you're allowing the bottom half to borrow more money. You're allowing the top half to make more gains in the stock market because the competition goes away. So what am I going to do? I'm going to take that wad of hundreds I just made in the market. I'm going to go spend it. And I'm going to drive inflation even higher. That's what you have to be careful of about overstimulating the economy. Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research. And I should also note, you just started an ETF under the ticker symbol WTBN in partnership with Wisdom Tree. Jim, it is great to welcome you back on the show and great to see you. Happy New Year. Yes, thank you very much. Happy New Year to you too. Well, Jim, I always love having you on the show and I know the viewers and the audience do as well. So I'm excited to kick off 2024 with you. And I want to start where we always start. And that is with the big picture macro view for you today. What is your assessment and that macro picture? And take as much time as you need. <laughs> um, I think that the economy is doing fine. I don't think we're at risk of a recession or that we are slowing down. Uh, the data is coming through okay. The employment report on the day we're recording came out at 216,000 jobs. It beat the expectations of 170,000 jobs. It is continuing to move higher. Wage growth ticked up. We have now seen wage inflation on a year-over-year -year basis uh, at 4%. And these numbers are pretty good. So what does that mean? I've argued that what that means is that demand for things, demand for stuff and services is going to stay strong. And that's a nice way of saying that inflation is not, I don't believe, in its last mile to 2%. I think it's bottoming at around 3%. And it's going to trend a little bit higher. So if you have decent growth and you have, let's call it sticky inflation around 3 or 4%, not 9 uh, then that probably puts upward pressure on interest rates. And I've been very vocal that I have a target of interest rates of 5.5% sometime in 2024. I know that that's consumed my life and it's probably going to be on my headstone that I'm calling for rates at 5.5%. Uh, but I would also point out that in the last week, interest rates have moved up 40 basis points in just a week. Before that, the two weeks before that, they fell 50 basis points. And they've moved almost 20 basis points in the day we were recording. So 150 basis point move is really not that much, although people think it is because they're just not used to the volatility that we have in the bond market. So sum it up, I think inflation is going to be a problem in 24, a sticky problem, not a big problem. Uh, I think the economy is going to continue to stay stronger and feed that inflation monster. And I think interest rates are going to go up. And the last thought for you is, does all that sound good for, for the stock market? Strong growth that probably translates into better earnings? Yes and yes. But what we've learned about the stock market in the last two years is what really drives it is its competition, is the competition of interest rates. Um, Dr. Jeremy Siegel wrote an update to his book, Stocks for the Long Run. 
And in that book, he says, okay, what's the long-term prospect for the stock market? And he runs through some math and he says, it's around 8%. What does that mean? That means do the Warren Buffett thing. Buy stocks that don't even look at their price for five years and value them in 10 years. And you should expect that they probably would have gained about 8% per year. Okay, well, in 2019, that same thing would have applied. And your alternative was a money market fund at zero, or your alternative was a bond fund at 2%. So we coined the term TINA. There was no alternative. And yeah, everybody had to get into stocks because it was the only place you were going to get a return. Well, in early 2024, your alternative is a money market fund at 5.3%, or a bond fund that's yielding between 475 and 5%. You can get two-thirds of the gains that the stock market will offer you over the next many years with very little market risk in a money market fund or a bond fund. And that's really what is driving the stock market. When rates go up, it struggles. It struggled all the way through October. Remember that in October, the S&P was only up 7% for the year, finished up 26 for the whole year, but through October was only up 7%. And if you took out the magnificent seven stocks, the other 493 were down on the year. Mid-cap stocks were down on the year. Small-cap stocks in the Russell 2000 were not only down on the year, they were below their 2022 low by the end of October. Why? Because the 10-year yield was at 5%. And then when the 10-year yield fell back to 4%, the stock market took off. So if I tell you the economy is going to be good, inflation is going to be a little bit sticky, earnings are going to be good, yes, 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 but that might push interest rates back to 5%. Okay, forget all that. We're going to have a struggle for the stock market. And that seems to be the story that we've seen. And I think that that's the story we're going to continue to see is that competition of higher rates is going to be the problem. You could give me 100 good earning reports. You give me a decent GDP report. But really what the stock market wants is it wants lower rates. And that's the only thing that's going to get it to go forward. Mm. Yeah, I was just looking at where we are on the 10-year um, as we are recording this, um, 3.987 at the moment. What, Jim, what is the pathway to five and a half for you? I, you know, I've used the, the math here that there's a metric that economists like to use, which is nominal GDP, and that is just the inflation rate plus the real growth rate. So in 2023, real growth averaged around two and a half to three percent. We haven't gotten the fourth quarter number. That's why I'm giving you a range and not a precise number. But it's around two and a half to three percent. I think we could do the same in 2024. So let's call that two and a half percent. If inflation bottoms at around three percent, which is what I think it will do, maybe it does trade slightly into the high twos or uh, maybe even quickly to the middle twos, but I think it'll average around 3%. 3% plus 2.5% is 5.5%. There's where my number comes from. I am looking at the relationship between long-term interest rates, and I'm looking at the relationship between nominal GDP. And I think that ultimately, an economy's interest rate settles out where its nominal GDP is expected to be. Now, for the last 15 years, interest rates ran below nominal GDP, but we also had QE. We had the Fed buying trillions of dollars worth of bonds to artificially depress them. We don't have that anymore. In fact, we have QT, which is that they're actually letting their portfolio shrink by adding more bonds to the system. But I'll just go with that You know, nominal GDP should be where interest rates would trade. And I've got it at 5.5% is where I think nominal GDP is eventually going to shake out. 
And that's where interest rates should eventually shake out is somewhere near that. And that's how I come up um, with that target. Got it. Okay. So on the inflation side, um, this notion that we could see it be stickier, um, hovering around 3%. Well, the, the Fed has this 2% target. What do you think they're going to do then? Well, first of all, what they're going to do is they're going to announce victory and they're going to announce that we're in the last mile. That's the phrase that everybody on Wall Street likes to use. On our way down to 2%, the day we're recording, uh, Janet Yellen came out, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, and now the Treasury Secretary had said, you know what? All those people at the Fed, they're geniuses. They did a great job. They fixed the problem. Thank God we have them. Is basically That's my summary of what she basically said this morning. Um, and if you want to take your investment advice from the Treasury Secretary, good luck to you. Uh, and so I think that ultimately they're going to talk about uh, that the inflation rate is going to go to 2%. But if it winds up being sticky at 3 the Fed will probably back off on the number of rate cuts that they're talking about in 2024. And the market will certainly back off of that. At the beginning of the year, which when we're recording was one week earlier, the market was anticipating that the Fed would cut rates six times, or priced in six rate cuts for this year. The Fed said three. One week later, we're now at five. So they've already re reversed one of those rate cuts for this year by short-term interest rates going up and partially inspired by the stronger than expected uh, payroll report. So I think that they're going to start, you know, they'll start backing off of it. And we've started to already see that in the market. Uh, the, the next Fed meeting is January 31st. The probability that the Fed is going to raise rates as it is priced into swaps markets in the Fed fund futures market, the probability the Fed's going to raise rates at that meeting is 5%, meaning 95% chance that they're not going to do anything at that meeting. Okay. That's, everybody expects that, no problem. The next meeting after that is in March. And the March meeting now is around 50, 55% that they're going to raise rates. Oh, excuse me, cut rates. Um, that was 90% a week ago. Now it's 50, 55%. So let's call it close enough that it's a coin toss. All of a sudden, the March meeting's in doubt. So now we're looking at the May meeting as being the next time that the Fed may cut rates. And that's the way the game will work. The Fed's going to cut rates. When? In three months. And then ask me again, in three months, what's the Fed going to do? They're going to cut rates in three months. And then ask me again in three months what the Fed's going to do. They're going to cut rates in three months. It's always going to be perpetually three months away. It will never be the next meeting. I think that's kind of the way that it's going to work. How do I say that? Because that's what it was the last year and a half. This is the last rate cut. This is the last rate cut. This is the last rate cut. You know, well, okay, they've raised, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. This is the last rate hike. This is the last rate hike. This is the last rate hike. We've said all through 22 and 23. And I was like, okay, they raised rates like 14 times. And you keep telling me after the last nine of them that that was the last one. I guess if you just keep saying it forever, eventually there will be a last one. And that's kind of what I think we're going to see on the other side with the rate cuts. Got it. Okay. So also um, going back to like the economy and the economy looks like it's doing okay. Um, do you think that we're going to, are we in a soft landing? I think I've heard you talk about a, a no landing, if I recall. Um, yes, And then there's correct. obviously the hard landing camp. What, okay. So you're a no landing camp. Can you explain that or what camp yeah, you're so, in? Yeah. No landing is just kind of a, a takeoff on the metaphor of an airplane, right? So there's the soft landing, which everybody's in. 
a hard landing, a crash is a recession. And then an old landing is the plane just keeps flying. It just keeps it just keeps going at two and a half percent. And that's where the no landing number comes in. And I'm in that camp. You know, they were just going to keep going at two and a half percent. Now, my biggest problem with a soft landing is it has no definition. Um, what exactly constitutes a soft landing? Uh, is it below two and a half percent growth? Is it sort of like a mild recession, kind of negative growth, but not really bad negative growth? Is it a little bit of both? Is it something else? No one has a definition for it. And I've quipped that it's Wall Street's favorite forecast. I'm going to forecast something that can't be defined. So therefore, I'll give you a definition in a year and tell you I was right. It No more than, again, my whipping boy for this interview is Janet Yellen, who came out today and said, we have achieved a soft landing. She said that today. What is it? What is it that we achieved? And then the second thing about a soft landing, to stick with the airplane metaphor, let's assume that there's some definition of below average growth. Okay, we get it for one quarter. Does that mean that we have to stay there for a year or two or three? What happens after we've soft landed? Do we take off again? Do we crash? Do we just kind of stay on the runway if you want to stick with the metaphor? Again, no one knows what that means. And I don't know if anybody knows what that means. And there's an argument to be made, not kind of fall into this camp. There's never actually ever been a soft landing. It's a word that we use before we go into a recession, or it's a word that we use when we, you know, to stick with my metaphor, no land. But there's never actually been that middle point that everybody talks about. So that's, you know, why I've, I've got a, um, a big problem um, with the soft landing story. And I currently... I don't see it. If you think we're going to soft land with 200,000 jobs a month, uh, which is way more than we need for um, you know population growth, we only need about 50 to 75,000 jobs a month to pay uh, for population growth, and, we're, and we've had 200,000 in the um, actually about 215,000 also happens to be the three month average. That's not going to that's not going to get us to a soft landing. Four percent wage growth is not going to get us to a soft landing. How to think about wage growth? I, I I like to quip that if you're get if you be the entire country on average is getting a four percent raise, then the entire country can pay four percent inflation because you can buy the same number of things in the same quantity one year from today, even though they're four percent higher, because you got four percent more money to pay for it. And usually, wage growth can't really diverge that far from. Uh, inflation. So if we continue to churn out 200,000 jobs, we continue to see the average wage in the country go up by 4%. It's, you know, we could do 2% inflation or 3% inflation for a, a, a brief period of time, but not an extended period of time because real growth will, con- you know, you could go buy more things in a year. But the problem is everybody could. And then we're going to demand more things. And then that's going to put upward pressure on its price, and that's why you have more inflation. So that's why I think the Fed is correct in pointing towards wages, because if we continue to have 4% wage growth, we can't sustain 2% inflation. And we've had 4% wage growth now for about a year, according to the average hourly earnings measure. Yeah. You know, um, some other areas I want to explore with you, and just this notion of um, five and a half on the on the 10 year and you're talking about like the competi- competition in the stock market. So 
We talked about what that might mean for the stock market, but are there other implications to that? I'm, I'm just trying to think back to like even last year um, around the regional banks, Silicon Valley Bank, um, duration mismatch um, with their fixed income holdings. Are there other implications we need to be thinking about with a five and a half on the 10-year? Yeah, and it is not good. Um, first of all, the, the good implication and then the bad implication. The Fed does a survey of consumer finances. You know, In other words, where all the money is, where all the debt is. And not surprisingly, the 10% highest income earners in the country own 90% of the assets. The people with the money own the assets. That's not a shock. Um, if you look at the composition of their assets, when interest rates go up, it improves their financial condition. Improves it. They get better. Why? Because they own fixed income assets. And those fixed income assets are generating interest income, a word that we didn't have to use for 15 years. There actually is an interest income. And the interest income for the upper 10% is going up faster than their interest expense if they have a mortgage or a loan that they have to pay a higher interest on. So as interest rates gone up, they've improved. The same thing with corporations, that the average corporation, the average corporation has seen more interest income come in the door then they've had to pay out in higher interest expenses because of higher interest rates. Yeah, there's zombie companies that are over levered. Yeah, they'll blow up and go away. That always happens. But then there's companies like Microsoft and Berkshire that have ver uh, very little debt and have seen billions of dollars slow to their bottom line because they're sitting with a ton of cash and that cash used to yield zero two years ago and now it's yielding 5%. Warren Buffett is making eight to $9 billion more a year just because T-bill rates went to 9%. Uh, I'm sorry, five percent, um, as as opposed to you know what he was what he was making. So corporations are improving on this. Now, who's on the losing side of it? The upper ten percent of the country owns ninety percent of the assets. The bottom fifty percent of the country owns something like two percent of the assets, but they have over half the debt. So I hate to say it, but you know, rich people own assets and poor people take out loans. And that's unfortunately the way it always worked. And so when interest rates go up, it's the bottom half of the country that really suffers because they don't have a stock portfolio. They don't own crypto. They don't own a home. They live paycheck to paycheck. They rent. They borrow, probably on their credit cards and other places, and they see their interest payments that they have to pay on that borrowed money go up. So that's why it is in incumbent on the Fed to bring inflation down to 2% and get it there and sustain it there so that they could bring interest rates down. Last year, or I should say in 2022, we understood this and we we being the collective of the market, we used to quip, you know, do your patriotic duty and take your losses in the stock market because that will cool demand, that will bring prices down that will bring inflation down for the other half of the country that lives paycheck to paycheck. Well, we kind of forgot that now. You know, now we're now we're back into, you know, number go up and everybody getting all excited about, you know, stocks roaring ahead and everything. But we haven't, I believe, really solved the inflation problem. So if I'm right that the inflation problem stays sticky and interest rates stay sticky, it's the bottom half of the country is going to lose. 
And the Fed is going to come under unbelievable pressure to do something about that. And that do something about that is you have to bring the inflation rate. You cannot just ignore the inflation rate and say, let's just cut the funds rate to 1%. Because all you're doing then is you're allowing the bottom half to borrow more money. You're allowing the top half to make more gains in the stock market because the competition goes away. So what am I going to do? I'm going to take that wad of hundreds I just made in the market. I'm going to go spend it. And I'm going to drive inflation even higher. That's what you have to be careful of about overstimulating the economy. So if inflation is a problem, the answer might be more like 22. We have to raise rates. You have to lose money in the stock market and be happy what you're doing for your neighbors by helping bring down the inflation rate. Now, like I said, that was Jay Powell's August 2022 speech at Jackson Hole, which is dubbed the there will be pain speech uh, that we need to do this to bring down inflation. Um, now he's trying to take credit that they've solved the problem. Um, but, um, you know, I'll give you a, an inside baseball, uh, inside basketball analogy. Amadi Stoudemire was a very famous basketball player, played for the Toronto Raptors. And once in the first round of the playoffs, he had been in the first round of the playoffs for five times and they were up 3-1 in the first round of the playoffs. And he said in an interview, it feels good to make the second round. There's only one problem, Amadi. You were only up 3-1. And you lost the next three games and you didn't make it to the second round. And I feel like this is the Fed. They're up 3-1 saying, God, it feels good to make it to the second round. But you haven't quite made it there yet. We're still not at 2%. So be very, very careful with declaring victory before you actually have victory. Mm. Sounds like they're in a really tricky spot then. And to that point, like, what do you think? 2% just not realistic? Like, What is preventing from getting to that level? Is it just, just not realistic or feasible at this point? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, why can't we get to 2%? Now, I guess it really comes down to the, the big picture long term. I've been operating under an assumption that every once or twice every generation, there's a big event that happens that alters the course of the economy. Now, Alter does not mean worse. It doesn't mean it's dystopian. It means it's different. The you know 9/11 was one. The Great Financial Crisis in 2008 was another one, and I believe 2020 was another one too. That going into the into the COVID recession and the lockdown shutdown, lockdown restart, the reboot of the entire economy it changed it. And again, change is not worse. The biggest thing we understand about change, the cha or the biggest thing we are aware of with the change is remote work. And I think that that has fundamentally changed culture. It has changed the way we work. It has changed the way we view our job. And that's the bedrock of the economy is employment. And if that is fundamentally changed, and again, it doesn't mean it's worse. Um, some people think remote work is a godsend. Other people, maybe more, you know, the, the supervisory class don't like it. Uh, but you know, but they'll, you know, we'll have to. But it's a reality, and it's here, and it's changed things. I think it's made jobs more transactional. What I mean by that is, people are not so concerned about their job anymore. I have a job, I do my job, and I'm talking about maybe the non-professional classes too. I have a job, I do my job, I'm happy with it. And I don't like my boss, I'll quit. What What are you going to do now? I'll find another job. What are you going to do in the meantime? Well, well, we'll go skiing for a couple of weeks, but you don't have any income. I'll get some income. Don't worry about it. And that's kind of the attitude that we have right now, as opposed to the attitude we had in 2019, where I have to save. What if I lose my job? I can't find another job. I have to have a, a, a nest egg. And so 
attitudes have changed now because of remote work. We're a lot more comfortable um, or not as stressed, maybe is a better way to put it, about our employment situation. And it really, you know, deglobalization has also been sped up, I think, because of, of 2020. I also think using energy as a political weapon, we've seen more and more of that um, since 2020 um, as well, too. So it really comes down to a basic question. Did something change in 2020? Bigger picture. If you ask the Fed, if you ask most of Wall Street, the answer is no. That's why they use words like normalization, rebalance. What are they trying to say with these words? We're going to go right back to where it was in 2020. And we're going to look at the world in 24, 25, and we're going to say, looks exactly like it did before COVID. It's like it never happened. And I'm arguing, no, the reboot of the economy changed things. And since they've changed, we have to start to recognize that if people are a little bit more comfortable about their job situation and they are not, and they're more willing to spend then we're going to see a different outcome. Let me give you an example. Prior to 2020, we had a bull market in stocks, but we never had inflation. Why? Because people looked at their brokerage statements or the Zillow value of their home and they said, wow, it went up and I've got more net worth. What are you going to do about it? Feel more secure that I have more savings. That's what I'm going to do about it. In 2021, when the government mailed checks and mean stocks, mean stocks like GameStop took off, and Dave Portnoy of Barstool was into stocks and he was picking letters out of a Scrabble bag to buy stocks live on his YouTube channel. Yeah, he did that in 2021. Yeah, he did. Yep. What did people do when they made all that, mo- all that money YOLOing into the stock market? You know, to use the crypto term, they bought Lambos. They spent it. And then we wound up with 9% inflation. So if we're going to get a rally in stocks and a rally in bonds and people are comfortable what are they going to do with that extra money? They're going to spend it is what they're going to do. And that's been the bedrock of what has been leading the economy to being stronger than people think, spending. And I think where Wall Street gets it backwards is Wall Street keeps talking about the excess pandemic savings, and that's what they're spending, even though we're three plus years past that. I think it's more about a comfort about labor that I can spend because I have a paycheck, I have a cash flow coming in, and I will always have a cash flow coming in. Last off for you, what is evidence that we've seen that? Look at what the second half of 23 brought us that we haven't seen in decades. Strike activity. The UAW, Hollywood, Kaiser Permanente, the largest healthcare provider in the country, all went on strike at one point in the second half of 2023, along with a lot of other strikes. The number of strikes as measured by a strike of at least 1,000 people, was the highest it has been in, I think, 23 years in the second half of 2023. Because the employer, the employees, feel comfortable about making demands to management. And in a lot of cases, they got those demands. That's why we have the words like labor hoarding um, that we've been using, in quiet quitting. These are words that imply that the employee class has more power, more comfort about their situation. That's why we're spending. We're some bigger comfort about our paycheck. Because if I don't like my job, I'll get another job. There's always another one somewhere around the corner. That's the attitude that we seem to have right now. That's why 
The UAW strike, by the way, was the first one ever that they struck all three companies at the same time. They usually strike one, cut a deal with that one, and use it as the model to apply to the other two. This time, they felt so strong about it, they wanted them all to compete against each other to see who would give them the best deal. And then they'd strike that deal and said to turn to the other two and said, all right, now you have to take that. You have to take the best deal for us is what they wound up doing. That's what I think has changed about this economy. And that's why I think when you see strength in the economy, when you see gains in financial markets, it's not that comfort that excess savings has that we had in 2019 and earlier. It's extra money. Let's go spend it. Yeah. Are there any other implications that you're thinking about that could be worrisome as it relates to five and a five and a half on the tenure? Um, oh yeah, I think that the biggest thing that I'm worried about with five and a half on the tenure is there's an old adage in the financial markets that the interest rates go up or the Fed hikes rates until something breaks. Mm-hmm. Now along the way, the last two years, we thought. Maybe it was the stock market correcting 25% in 2022. Maybe it was the bond market having its worst sell-off since the Civil War. Ed McQuarrie at Santa Clara University has data on this bond market back to 1793, and it shows that it actually was the worst sell-off since the Civil War. Maybe it was the bank stocks blowing up in the failure of Silicon Valley Bank in March. That was what broke. The answer, I used to, now all through that, I used to think, man, maybe this was it. This was it. We raise rates till something breaks. Well, we didn't. I don't think that now sitting in January of 24, we can look back and say, that wasn't it. They, they might have broke some banks. It might have broke some investors, but it didn't break the economy like we're used to. So if the 10-year yield is going to keep going up to 5.5%, At some point, if it gets high enough, I don't know if five and a half is that number or if it's higher. Nobody knows what that number is. But there's always the risk that as interest rates go up, you get to a point where it breaks things. And what I mean by breaks things is you get a contraction in the economy. You get a sell-off in risk markets because earnings have disappeared, losses are piling up, people are losing their jobs. We didn't get there. We didn't get there in 23. Tells me we did get the 5% in the 10-year. That, that, that wasn't a break point, 5%. So as we go above that, being a little presumptuous that my forecast is going to be right, all forecasts are subject to being wrong. But if we go through above 5%, the concern I have is you know, the yields go up, the Fed raises rates, even though they might stop here, they'll stop at this higher level until that something breaks that we're getting closer to that break point. And eventually, yeah, I think we will have that break point. I just don't think we've seen it just yet. Yeah. Okay. Another item I want to bring up with you, um, as we welcomed the new year, the U.S. debt crossed $34 trillion. Um, do you have a take on that situation? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> a couple of things about that is debt is in and of itself not a problem, in and of itself. Robert Barrow, um, a famous economist, has the Barrow Ratio. He likes to talk about when you you borrow, the government borrows, you are pulling forward 
spending that you would do in the future. A great example of that, so everybody knows, is when you're in your early 30s, you buy your first home, you take out a 30-year mortgage. Why do you take out a 30-year mortgage? Because if you saved until you were 60, you'd have enough money to pay cash for that home. But you need it in your 30s. You don't need that home in your 60s. So you're pulling forward all of those future expected earnings and borrowing that money now and paying it back slowly over time. And you buy that home, you raise a family in it to give you this you know, typical example. And it, it, it turns out to be a very productive investment. Comfortable home, good place to raise a family, good place to you know, settle down you know, and focus on um, um, things that are important to you. Uh, Barrow would say that that is a borrowing ratio of over one. You borrowed $1 and you produced more than $1 of economic activity. If you could do that, you can borrow forever and you've got no problem. When you start borrowing and it turns out to be wasteful borrowing, um, where you produce less than $1 worth of economic activity, that's when it becomes a problem. And that's what the government tends to do more of than not with their borrowings is it tends to be not very economically productive. And in fact, in the case of the government, in a lot of cases, it could be a negative ratio, that you would have been better off not even doing it at all. You made things worse by, bar by borrowing and doing this activity than you would have had you have not done um, that activity. So $34 trillion in and of itself, not a problem, unless you wind up wasting it. And that's where the problem comes in because that's what the government does way too much with all that borrowing is they wind up wasting it. And wasting it is defined as is not fraud or abuse. It's putting it into activities that don't even produce a dollar's worth. If you put a dollar, if you borrow a dollar and you repave a road nobody uses, you wind up getting 30 cents of economic activity out of it. You wasted it. If you repave a road that people use and it increases or cuts down commute times, you could say you produced more than $1 worth of activity. Now, the government likes to tell you that every act activity they've ever done will produce more than $1 worth of activity, but the reality is rarely do they do it. They wind up producing a lot worse than that. And so, yeah, that's what it's, is the concern about the borrowing right now is as the government, look, that $34 trillion number is up $2.5 trillion in the second half of 2024 alone since we stopped with the debt ceiling. So as that number goes up in borrowing, and that is not very useful money or economically useful spending, it becomes a bigger and bigger burden. Now, people get the result of that backwards, because I hear this on social media all the time, we've borrowed too much money, we can't raise rates. No, that's not how it works. It works the opposite. It's we've borrowed too much money and the market is going to force you to stop borrowing money. And how's it going to do that? It's going to take interest rates up and up and up. And But the, but the debt, see, but the de interest expense is going to go up. Yes, and you're going to have to stop borrowing in other places and you're going to have to pay that interest rate. If the answer was that we borrowed all this money, we wasted it, but we can't pay it back. So we have to lower interest rates to make it easier for us to pay it back so we can borrow even more wasteful money, we wind up with hyperinflation. So if we're worried that that $34 trillion is too much and it's wasteful spending, 
It's not been productive. Look, there's plenty of companies that borrow that are over that are levered companies that borrow that do it very smartly, and they're not a problem that they've borrowed so much money because they do it smartly and they produce more than one dollars worth of output for that borrowing. But the government doesn't. Is that that number will produce higher interest rates? It will force the government to stop borrowing. It will force the government to change its priorities. And that's what ultimately I think means when you have a higher debt number. Not that we have to cut it and make it easier to pay it. That I hear that all the time. It's that we have to get you to stop doing it by making those rates higher so that you can't afford to do it anymore. Yeah. Well, let me see if I can sneak in one more question before I let you go. And, you know, Jim, you're you're a macro guy, you have a fixed income bent, but also you do crypto as well. Um, yeah. I know you've had laser eyes in the past. So yep. the Bitcoin spot ETF um, SEC approval is expected. I mean, anytime now. What's your take on it? Um, you're right. I do a lot of crypto. I was sitting here fumbling on my desk. Oh, here it is. Uh, I was going to brag. Here's my here's my ledger. I have my own little <laughs> yeah. ledger here, and here's uh, here's my crypto. Yeah, you go. My crypto net worth is right there. Um, that's all you know uh, uh, as well. I think that I am I am bullish on crypto, and I think that I am bullish on DeFi. And I am bullish on this whole idea of an alternative financial system and an alternative form of money. I really think this is a good idea. And I also think it is something that most of the world needs. People, the problem is, I saw Jim Gorman on TV. He's the chairman of Morgan Stanley saying, I don't quite understand Bitcoin. It's a speculative asset, but everybody else understands it. and They made money good for them. Of course, you don't understand it. You're at the apex predator. You're the chairman of Morgan Stanley in the reserve currency country with the rule of law. There are billions of people that live in Asia, Latin America, and Africa that don't have viable banking systems, that don't have viable monetary systems, that have no way to store wealth. And for them, a digital asset that is permissionless and censorship proof is exactly what they need. And remember, 80% of the third world, of the third world, has mobile phones. They have a way to, to access that. If you go to a refugee camp in Africa, all those people have mobile phones. Everybody has a mobile phone. So they have a way to have their money in a digital account. And so this is who, it, who needs it. I always bristle at the idea that people that own three homes and two Teslas are arguing they don't understand Bitcoin. Go live in a Latin American country where you have a shaky, corrupt banking system, where you have hyperinflation on your currency, and ask them what they think about the idea of a digital currency. That's exactly what they need. You don't need it in Greenwich, Connecticut. They may need it in Venezuela. And that's the that's the the, the big disconnect between that. So I've said I'm really bullish on crypto. So I'm going to shit on it. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that is, I am not a fan of the whole concept of a spot Bitcoin ETF. I'm not a fan of it. I understand it has pushed the price up. I understand it may still cause number go up. But what you're doing is you're making the same mistake with the same wording that the gold bugs used for the last 40 years. Before crypto, how do you get your money out of, out of, out of the financial system? 
well, you really couldn't, but the closest thing you could do was gold. You could buy gold. And in the 80s, in the 70s, in a brief moment there, you know, in the 2000s, gold had its moment in the sun. And then everybody said, ooh, this gold thing is kind of an interesting thing. How do I make it easier for people to buy gold? We created GLD, which was the gold ETF. We created futures. We created options on them. And I'm talking about unregulated exchanges. And we made it easier for everybody to own gold. But in the and and we made the battle cry. Tell me if you've heard this before. If only everybody put one percent of their money in gold, the price would go to five thousand. I think I've heard that before. Yeah, the crypto guys are constantly using that phrase. If only all the wealth put one percent of their money in crypto, you know, Bitcoin would go to a million. It, gold. The gold guys have used that exact same argument for the last forty years, and it never materialized. One of the problems was. As you roped gold into the financial system, you trade an ETF on it. We're going to do that with Bitcoin. You trade futures on, on a regulated exchange. We already do that with Bitcoin and, and Ethereum. We trade options on regulated exchanges. We do that with Bitcoin and Ethereum. You bring it in to the existing system. So what happened to gold? It became another fiat currency. It became no different than the euro or the yen, and it rallies when the dollar weakens. It's not really that independent. What I'm afraid of with, with Bitcoin and the Bitcoin ETF is we're going to suck them back into the TradFi system. Well, if you're going to suck them into the TradFi system, why don't we go the whole way then? If, you've, if all you want is just all the wealth managers put 1% in it, so a number go up, why don't we get rid of the blockchains? And why don't we just run it on a server at the Fed? It'll be a lot more efficient. It'll be a lot more. It'll be a lot more um, 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 easier to do. Um, oh yeah, the Fed may permission you. The Fed may censor you. The Fed may abuse it. But hell, if it just causes number to go up, who cares about all that other stuff? That's my concern about a, a spot ETF. Is that you're losing the narrative? The narrative was an alternative system. You're getting sucked into it. 30 or 40 years ago, gold was supposed to be the alternative. It got sucked into it with ETFs and futures and options, and it became part of the of the system it was trying to not be part of. And I'm afraid if with because of all of this hype, look, you want number go up? Fine. Let's just let's shut down all the projects and just create more ETFs and we can ram Bitcoin to 100 k And then if you think that it's going to have a long-term future, Who's going to want to invest in anything but TradFi ways to own this thing? And then it just gets consumed by the system. And then you own it on a regulated account in a regulated exchange. And then it becomes permissioned. It becomes censored. There's rules put on it as to who and who can't own it. And you wound up creating nothing at the end of the day. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. Or maybe I should say, I hope that's not going to happen. But I don't like the road mm-hmm. we're going down. And I and I don't like the excitement and the hype that we're getting sucked into this system that Larry Fink blessed Bitcoin. So therefore we're legitimate. You shouldn't be waiting for Larry Fink, he's the chairman of BlackRock, yeah. in order to um in order to tell you that you're legitimate. You should be creating a system that makes Larry Fink wonder if he remains legitimate instead of you waiting for him to bless you. And that's where I see us kind of heading. I really hope I'm wrong on this. I really hope that it doesn't wind up consuming it and sucking it into the TradFi system, and it winds up staying outside the system. Because 
I think crypto needs more than just Bitcoin with its with its stable inflation rate because of the number of coins that can be made and the having is coming in March and everything. That's good, but that's not enough. We need to put a whole ecosystem around it. And that ecosystem around it is not, I own the BlackRock ETF in my Fidelity account. That is not going to be the ecosystem that is going to make it survive in the long run. That's why I held up my ledger. I held up my ledger again, because you need to find a system outside of that to create an alternative system. It's not going to help those people in Latin America and Asia that are looking for um, uh, that are looking for digital assets as a way to store their value on their mobile phone. And so, like I said, I'll say I am bullish on this on the space, and I really like what the space is doing. But this detour into having Larry Fink promote you as being legitimate and everybody being excited that the football captain says I'm a cool kid and I get to sit at the cool kid table at lunch is not exactly where I think that the crypto space needs to want to go. Mm-hmm. Well, Jim, I love interviewing you. I love listening to you and learning from you. And um, I've had you on the show probably four times now, and I always learn something from you. I want to give you a few minutes here to share where folks can find you on social media, read your research, if you can say anything about your ETF, and any parting thoughts? Is there anything that you want to leave with the audience to think about that we didn't bring up in this conversation? Yeah. So um, I am. I have two websites. I have my research website, which is biancoresearch.com. My ETF has a website, which is called biancoadvisors.com. The ETF symbol is WTBN. To be specific, I run an index and the ETF, which is in partnership with Wisdom Tree, tracks my index. WTBN is the is the um, uh, is the ticker for the ETF, and the um, Bianco Advisors explains the um, the index. It is a long only fixed income uh, ET uh, index. Yields are back to around four seventy five percent in the bond market. It is precisely because there's a, a bear market in bonds, and I've always been a bond guy from the beginning that I think that that yield needs to be managed and that that we are trying to offer something that could give a total better total return so you can keep that 470 yield maybe not be subject to losses if interest rates go up prices go down and maybe some gains when they turn around and go back the other way I'll shorten my my pitch on it and say Yanko Research Advisors WTBN there's plenty of information at both of those sources on that to follow me otherwise at Bianco Research on um, Twitter, Jim Bianco on LinkedIn. You can always go check out BiancoResearch.com, Bianco Advisors. Last thing I'd want to leave you with is something I said earlier. I think that you know we've 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 gone through this period of introspection in the last month or two. Man, all these forecasts, these consensus forecasts, are wrong. Well, that's always true, but they've really been way more wrong than usual. And I would argue, why is it that they've been more wrong? Did something happen in 2020? I said this before and I'll re- reiterate it. Did something happen in 2020 that has lasting impl- implications? If the answer is yes, that needs to be factored in to our forecasts. If the answer is no, then, uh, then that needs to be factored in. Wall Street seems to think nothing happened. In tw- it was 2020 happened. It's over. We're going to go back to the way things were. They keep forecasting we're going to return in the way things were. 
and the forecasts have been more off than usual. I'm arguing the reason that they've been off so much is they're not understanding or appreciating that coming out of 2020, trends have changed and they're not going back to 2019. And if you keep thinking, my forecast is a return to 2019, it's been wrong in 22, it's been wrong in 23, it's going to be wrong in 24. If it is, if I'm wrong and we are going to return to 2019, then their forecasts are going to be right. But so I would say to you, did something change of lasting implication following 2020 or not? Wall Street does not think it has. I think it has. There's other people like me that think it has too. That's where I think everybody's got to start with that question. Think about remote work. Is it here to stay? I think it is. And if it is here to stay, what does it mean? And so that that's just the last provocative question I'll leave you with. But thank you for the uh, time to talk. You've given us a lot to think about, and we are so grateful for you being so generous with your time and your ideas. Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you.